0: If what
1: matters about religious belief is not the factual truth of what they affirm but the sincerity with which they are held if religious belief is a matter of personal inward experience rather than an account of what is objectively the case then there are certainly no grounds for thinking that christians have any right much less any duty to seek the conversion of these neighbors to the christian faith Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler, and this week is week three of our series on chapter one of The Divine Conspiracy. This week, we get a little further from Willard, although we have a very important reading of that chapter at the end of this this episode here by Daniel that I think ties a lot of what we're saying together. This week, I read extensively from C.S. Lewis and The Abolition of Man, and I read from a paper I wrote actually on C.S. Lewis' critiques of postmodernism in the work The Abolition of Man. And so we talk a little bit about um, language theory by Saussure, who is a early postmodernist, and how that affects how we view the world. How we think about power and will to power, as Newbegin points out. And so, all of this is, is kind of culminating in... This episode really gives what I've been alluding to the past few weeks a lot of steam in the argument we're trying to really lay here, and I'll give it to you now, is that the loss of morals and actions in a grounding ethic... For culture, however well or bad that ethic is put into practice, the loss of that leads to a loss of vision, quite literally. And so, I hope that that teaser, that that thesis right there, makes you interested in what's about to be discussed. I had a jo- it was a joyous time and a very, um, very, it's very expanding to talk about this. And so, I hope that it encourages you, that it challenges you, and that it gives you a new way to see, a new way to think about things. And so, without further ado, let's continue this conversation on Chapter 1 and The Divine Conspiracy.
2: assumption that if you did this and you just did mission, that then it would re-energize Christians, it would bring alive their faith, and it would sort of bring the church back to its sermons. It was postmodernism was hitting, and there's books about that. And so, you know, the question is, okay, well, how do we incarnate into postmodern or Gen X culture? And um, he's talking about how do we, you know, be the church,
1: preach the gospel in a postmodern, post-Christian society?
2: you know i started i planted this this congregation and we didn't have singing we didn't have sermons it was conversation you know clips from the simpsons we didn't have a front you know i was very much influenced by some of the alternative worship stuff yep. that was happening Sitting in the uk yeah totally and so it was this attempt to then use the cultural forms i was using the framework of missiology but the thing that i missed was that there was an assumption that if you did this and you just did mission, that then it would re-energise Christians, it would bring alive their faith, and it would sort of bring the church back to its core purpose. Now, I do believe that mission is one of the core purposes of the church, but the model then of the three cultures is the idea that the third culture actually is not a pre-Christian culture. So it's not we go from one, a pre-Christian culture, then two, sort of a Christianized, Christendom culture, and then now we return back to culture one. Yeah, that's not it. That's not an option. Exactly. That it, What it is, is actually we're turning to culture three, which can look tribal, it can look pagan, but it's not. What it is, is a, is a culture that's defining itself against Christianity, wants some of the fruits of Christianity, whether it knows that or not, you know, consciously, and therefore has a, a, a corrosive and caustic effect. So, The science of missiology taught people in in Christian culture not to colonize people in culture one when they're communicating the gospel to them. But what I realized was happening was that as I was in culture two, incarnating and using cultural forms to speak to culture three, a post-Christian culture, that it was colonizing us. Okay, so let me, this is huge. And I think
3: the idea that you're getting at has so many implications for church, for life, for following Jesus. You're saying, let me make sure I hear you right that if you're coming from a Christian or a Christianized culture to a pre-Christian culture, so say you're a missionary from England in 1894 to you know Uganda, I think it was called Rhodesia, or whatever it was called at the time, or today you go as a missionary to somewhere in the Muslim world or to Indonesia, somewhere like that, the danger is that you colonize the culture. Yes. That as you bring the gospel of Jesus, you also bring American values, how we dress, how we eat, our moral, our political, our whatever, values that may or may not line up with the way of Jesus, and you colonize the culture in ways that don't celebrate the good and the beautiful and the true in that culture. The danger, if you're coming from a Christian or a Christianized culture to a post-Christian culture, which is a Portland, which is most of America right now, which is 2017 across the Western world, is actually very different. The danger is not that you colonize, the danger is that you are colonized yes. by the culture, Yes, that you go out, with the gospel of Jesus, and instead of influence, you are influenced. You actually are, instead of shaping, you are shaped. There are all sorts of implications for this. So, am I hearing you right? Is that kind of the?
4: So, the point being made, and we kind of talked about this subtly, um, is that the new culture on the scene is the one colonizing the previous culture. Mm -hmm. Now, this is obviously true of um, of culture two to culture one right we've seen many years of history where the west colonized the rest of the world and with that it brought along oftentimes christianity Mm -hmm. now this tension between bringing western culture and bringing christianity a lot of the times that was conflated and they those two things were seen as the same thing now retrospectively we've come to the realization that we need to reframe that and we don't need to associate western culture and christianity synonymously though i think as we've talked about certain aspects of western culture have inherently been shaped by christian principles that Mm -hmm. kind of undergird the whole system that said we need to be precise in our missioning that way we are bringing the gospel not western culture itself then in our current situation the new danger becomes are we being colonized as Christians by the this third culture that has arisen? And is this colonization going to overrun our value structure? And I use that specifically, right, because we've been talking about um, your coworker, right? My mom likes to pray. I like to meditate and do yoga because we have, and this, I don't want to, I guess, I'm, I'll guess I'll be the first person to say it on the podcast, even though this is the term you coined when we were talking two days ago. So full credit to you. It becomes a pluralistic heresy. Right.
1: To proclaim that, no, there's actually a superordinate reality. Yes. That is something we must contend with. That isn't just, oh, it's a good option if you do this or that. Oh, you can take Jesus or leave him, but it won't matter in the end.
4: And so to say, no, this is good news. This is something that has happened in the world that you have to contend with. That's a heresy against this new pluralistic framework. That has become predominant in our postmodern culture, and we have lost a lot of the that grounding. This is something I think that will that'll be interesting to talk about in a couple of weeks. But the um, culture too, a lot of the values have been carried forward, right? Kingdom without a king, but because. Culture three is now predominant. Culture two is seen as the immorality, mm-hmm. right? It's immoral to have, it, it's viewed as immoral to have a, um, a traditionally Christian sex ethic. It's viewed as immoral to have certain values pertaining to the way people should interact with each other. And I mean, we could talk a We can have a long list of ways in which that happens, but it's no longer, Oh, you're just the weird one on the outside. It's now Mm
1: -hmm. you're the bad guy.
4: You're the pagan Mm -hmm. and I'm the saint trying to missionize to you.
1: We'll get there.
4: So, yeah, but I digress. um,
1: And I wanted, uh, as you were saying, I was thinking, A lot of what people decry in the loss of culture, too, is moral structures, as Peterson is pointing out here. But the deeper thing I think he's critiquing, and probably why he's as popular as he is, I don't, I'm not as worried about us losing our moral. I guess, superiority in the culture as Christians. I'm scared we're literally losing our vision. That's what this episode is about. So I want to read some more Nubian. And I found a section that I should have read earlier. So I'll read that and then I'll read
4: something else. Real quick, I want to say something on what you just said. I think it's actually good that we are losing our sense of moral superiority within the broader culture. Yeah. Well, because I, th- I think how
1: long have we really had it? Mm.
4: Uh, well, it depends on where
1: it, you live, but
4: yeah, it depends on where you live. And it also depends on in what realm of morality mm-hmm. you're talking about. But also I think that it is something that needs to happen within Western culture, because I genuinely think the church needs some humbling.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And I mean that in a very delicate and compassionate way. Um, but anyway, that's, I wanted to at and least highlight I think, that.
1: I think we also must understand that we are not, our hands aren't clean either. Put it that way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But new begin. should have read this at the beginning, but I totally forgot about it. So here we are. This is in the first chapter. This is just page six. He says, however grievously the church may have distorted and misused the concept of dogma in the course of history, and it has indeed done so grievously, to your point just now, the reality which the word design which the word designated is present from the beginning and is intrinsic to the gospel. Something radically new has been given, something which cannot be derived from rational reflection on the experiences available to all people. Jordan Peterson to Sam Harris. It is a new fact to be received in faith as a gift of grace. A new fact. And what is thus given claims to be the truth, not just a possible option. It is the rock which must either become the foundation of all knowing and doing, or else the stone on which one stumbles and falls to disaster. Those who, through no wit or wisdom or good godliness of their own, have been entrusted with the message, can in no way demonstrate its truth on the basis of some other alleged certainties, that they can live by it and announce it. It is something given dogma, calling for the assertion ascent of faith. And of course, it is at this point that the other strand of our culture, the humanist, rationalist element, is roused to protest, to subject every alleged truth to the critical scrutiny of reason is, in our culture as in the Greek world of Paul's day, the mark of a mature person. Perhaps our culture has prided it Itself more than in any previous culture on its willingness and ability to subject every dogma to fearless criticism in the light of reason and experience, it is therefore natural that the missionary, the evangelist, with his confident assertion of a truth to be accepted in faith, should be the object of suspicion, or at least of skepticism. Is he not simply a survivor of a previous epoch culture too? Must we not all accept that truth is larger, richer, and more complex than can be contained in any one religious or cultural tradition? You pray, I meditate and do yoga. It is not more fitting that we adopt the attitude of a humble seeker after truth. Is it not more fitting? Keeping an open mind, ready to listen to all that comes from the varied religious experience of the human race? Is it not more honest? as well as more humble to stop preaching and engage in rather uh, and rather in dialogue, listening to the experience of others and offering our own, not to displace theirs, but to enrich and be enriched by the sharing of religious experience. Only an open mind can hope to reach the truth and dogma is the enemy of the open mind. One might make an immediate and rather superficial comment on this by saying that it is very obviously a view which we apply only to certain kinds of truth, In spite of the enthusiasm of many educational experts for encouraging their peoples to have an open mind and to make their own decisions about truth, a teacher who asks her class whether Paris is the capital of France or Belgium will not appreciate the child who tells him that he has an open mind on the matter. The principle of pluralism is not universally accepted in our culture. It is one of the key features of our culture and one that we shall have to examine in some depth we make a sharp distinction between a world of what we call values and what we call facts. In the former world, we are pluralist. Values are a matter of personal choice, and the latter we are not. Facts are facts whether you like them or not. It follows that in this culture, the third culture, the church and its preaching belong to the world of values. The church is among the good causes, which must be be supported by good people. And without the support, it will collapse. The church is not generally perceived as concerned with facts, with the realities, with. and listen to this, listen to this. The church is not generally perceived as concerned with facts, with the realities which finally govern the world, and which we shall, in the end, have to acknowledge whether we like them or not. Well, I thought every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is the cultural milieu, the confident announcement of the Christian faith, sounds like an arrogant attempt of some people to impose their values on others, the will to power. As long as the church is content to offer its beliefs modestly, as simply as one of the many brands available in the ideological supermarket, No offense is taken. But the affirmation that the truth revealed and the gospel ought to govern public life is offensive. And then I wrote in the margin, news, not advice. Anything before I read one more section? It...
4: I mean, at this point, we're just, I think, really hammering it home. But I think it's worth hammering home because it's something that's so relevant and so prevalent in our culture. This is something that I want you to
0: listen to. And then next
1: week, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, you'll say... I, I see it everywhere now that I know
4: about it. I've had since listening to this cultural moment, reading Willard, um, and then you've sent me, I don't even know how many pictures of pages from the Newbegin book to read because um, I regrettably haven't been reading it. Um, I just haven't had the time and I don't own it. Um, I guess I could fix that. But anyway, um, the, since all of that, my engagement with Christian culture has shifted yet again. Because I think we understand ourselves as giving good advice. And I think that's a shame i also think that when we see ourselves correctly as bringing news we bring that news poorly
0: and so it's, it's something good else.
1: why it's, what is it news what makes it good
4: mm-hmm. and so i do
1: and this sorry no. This is why I kept saying. This is why I said the other week. And you might think, whenever that gets posted, then oh, is Luke really a Christian? But I kept. I keep asking myself as I'm driving now, reading New Begin, reading, rereading Divine Conspiracy, having this reading Wright's book on news is like, okay, do I act as if this is a reality with which I have to contend, or do I just think I'm out here giving people good advice for their life? I'm giving people an
4: interesting way to think about the spiritual world. Well, and that right there is the question I think we're trying to get people to ask about themselves, because I've had to have the same, the same question. I've had to ask myself, okay, am I actually living in a way that treats this as good news and not just a good way to go about living? And I think for a long time, if I'd had the language to to express my beliefs on the matter, I should have been saying, I thought it was advice. I think I'm getting to the point now because of having this language that I can say, no, I I do genuinely think it's news, but there are still parts of it that I struggle with. And that's the thing Mm -hmm. that we have to keep coming back to is, I think there's grace for when we take it as advice and not news. Right. To, to go back to our justification episode. It's not It's not that we have to get it perfect and that we have to be transformed now and all of a sudden walk in step with the spirit and not um, succumb to the lusts of the flesh, as we talked about. Don't um, you know, we have to immediately get off the path that leads to death, death and get on the path that leads to life. And failure to do that means you're, you're ruined um, or failure to stay on the path. Like, I, I think there's grace here, but it's a question worth asking.
0: And it's a question that until a month ago, I hadn't even known to start asking. If I were to show you this book,
1: especially the first two chapters. I quite literally have almost no pages that don't have lines or blocks or underlines or notes in the margin. It took me an hour to read the first chapter. It's 15 pages. It's not that long. New Begins Writing isn't that complicated. But This was a book, and he wrote this in the, I think in the 80s. Let's see. Um, 1980,
4: Willard, 1989 Willard wrote *Divine Conspiracy*. I want to say the year, the year after I was born. So nineties.
0: Yeah, unless, unless that's a later copyright.
1: But I, I, again, I'd been exposed to some of Newbegin's thought through this cultural moment. Some of this idea of the pre-Christian, Christian, post-Christian, pluralist society, the fight for truth, right? This is, Peterson's all over this too, as we've, as we've just seen, but I'd ne- I hadn't read something where I said, where I thought, oh, he's literally giving me different, and I read it in conversation with Simply Good News, so, which was fantastic, but, oh no, oh no, I just haven't had the language for this.
4: So, And I think this also bears saying, um, this is us covering chapter one of Divine Conspiracy. And we have talked a lot about Newbegin and not Willard. But that's because we're using Willard as the the framework. And we think that Newbegin and others do a very good job of fleshing out that flying upside down principle that is Mm -hmm. the thesis of his chapter one
1: of morality disconnected from life. And I guess you could say it's only so long that morality is disconnected from life that there is no more transcendent morality. It's just your life.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So this is us trying to not just cover chapter one of Divine Conspiracy. This is us trying to make sure that we expand upon everything that Willard is trying to lay as the foundation for us moving forward. With that being said, is there more new Begin, or do you want to move Yeah, to- there's
1: one more section. All I right. think this is, this is.
0: What do you say to your coworker?
1: Oh, well, as long as it leads to the same outcome. What I believe, what you believe is really, which is funny, right? As long as you get, as long as you're a good person. Well, how do you define good person? You mean by standards you find in the Bible? Sounds the, pretty Christian to me.
4: By the prominence of the second culture.
1: What do you say to them when facts and value, though, are different? When the personal beliefs of me, really, in Newbegin's estimation, are going to have no effect on the, let's say, actual world. This is at the end of the second chapter of The Roots of Pluralism. He says, there is one particular aspect of pluralism which has become very important for people in in the Western world during the past 30 years. Although the world has been a religiously plural place for as long as we know anything of the histories of religions, most people for most of history have lived in societies where one religion was dominant and others were marginal. What the sociologists call the plausibility structure was provided by the dominant religion. Culture two or culture one. This was the situation during, wit- during the period when European civilization developed and is still the situation in a country like Saudi Arabia, except perhaps in the urban centers. But in the past 30 years, European peoples have become accustomed for the first time to the presence in their midst of a large number of peoples of other faiths. It has not taken long for them to discover that many of these Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, and Muslims are devout and godly people, whose religion means, more, whose means much more to them than Christianity means to the majority of Europeans. If what matters about religious belief is not the factual truth of what they affirm, but the sincerity with which they are held, If religious belief is a matter of personal inward experience, rather than an account of what is objectively the case, then there are certainly no grounds for thinking that Christians have any right, much less any duty, to seek the conversion of these neighbors to the Christian faith. Why do you feel that tension? Well, that right there. If religious belief is a matter of personal inward experience, my personal salvation filling of the Holy Spirit, rather than an account of what is objectively the case, the good news of Christ, then there are certainly no grounds for thinking that Christians have any right, much less any duty, to seek the conversion of their neighbors to the Christian faith. To try to do so is arrogance, since the interreligious issue is usually compounded by the interracial issue. And since we are aware of the racism which infects us so deeply, There are the strongest emotional reasons for regarding a religious pluralism as something to be accepted and welcomed. The Christian faith, and here's the consequence, if we're just one personal belief fighting another, sincerity is what is the marker of true faith. Then what happens in the society? In a society that says every faith is valid, Just judge your following of it by your inner dependence. The Christian faith may be true for us. The Christian faith may be true for us. It is not necessarily true for everyone. To confess Jesus as Lord and Savior and to worship him in language that we use in church is quite proper as an expression of our devotion But this does not entitle us to make the same claims outside the context of the life and worship of the church. Our creedal statements are not to be understood as statements of objective truth. That is to say, statements of what is the case and therefore what everyone in the end has to deal with. Jesus is my Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior. Others, with equal sincerity, look to other names as the recipients of their devotion. We have no right to affirm in such a society that there is no other name given under heaven, whereby we are to be saved. Here, pluralism reigns. What matters is not the factual content of faith claims, but the sincerity with which they are held. They are matters not of public knowledge, facts, but of personal faith, values. Knowing is one thing. And the schools are there to see that everyone knows what, what we all need to know about the real facts. Believing is something else. That is, it is a personal matter for each individual. Each of us should have a personal faith of our own. In the next chapter, we should look more closely at this interesting dichotomy in our society between knowing and believing.
4: That made me think of something that we've kind of covered before with Augustine. So I guess we'll add one to the Augustine counter. Um, But Augustine talks about, you know, loving God and loving neighbor as being very, as the the paramounts of Christian ethics, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And really the paramounts of Christian faith. But he also talks about how we need the rest of the Bible to show us how to do that properly because there's a proper way and an improper way to go about doing that.
0: Excuse me. And
4: he, um, obviously not speaking in English, but he, he uses, it was translated frequently, the word sincerity just like Newbigin used. You can be sincerely wrong. You might have sincere beliefs. You might sincerely believe that this is the proper way to love someone, but you can be sincerely wrong. And that's one of my issues with inclusivity being the, um, of most importance within the gospel is, oh, well, being inclusive is being loving. You can love in wrong ways. And sometimes I think
0: being inclusive in
4: certain ways can be sincerely wrong. That is not to say that we are to purposefully exclude people, but it's, it's the same in relationships if I let someone continuously abuse me, I am sincerely wrong. Because that's not loving myself or loving them properly in, or in letting them do that.
0: And so people can have sincere beliefs, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their beliefs reflect the good news, the truth that exists,
4: and so on and so forth. And I think the temptation within a pluralistic culture
0: is to not acknowledge that because that would be pluralistic heresy. And That's what the third culture is all about. We,
1: I'm going to try and build this bridge to our fourth movement here. Yeah. We've been hitting on. Um
0: I've been hitting on well, let's start here. I said that what I think is interesting,
1: most people decry the loss of Morality and the movement from Christian to post-Christian, which is fair enough, as Peterson points out. I think we,
0: I think we lose our vision
1: when we do that. Our vision for what the world could be, our vision for how to interact with other people, um, any kind of guy as as willard points out in his opening of the chapter are we flying upside down what are instruments for orientation this whole thing we've been doing for the past two and a half hours is what is it what does it mean to have instruments of orientation what happens when those don't aren't a thing anymore what happens when all instruments are equal Or we claim that all instruments can have the same use.
0: Well, I would
1: say then you don't really live in the world. But um, I I use the the language of vision on purpose because, well, let's just say this isn't how we see things, quite literally. I guess we'll start here. I uh, I wrote a paper. Uh, That's the wrong. That's the wrong paper. Uh, (laughs) I wrote a paper last semester, and it was. Oh, what did I title it?
0: Let's go to my Word documents.
1: Okay, this was for my apologetics class last semester, and it was titled "Postmodern Postmodernism's Perception Problem.
0: I start with a brief summary of its history, and then... Talk about
1: Saussure, Ferdinand Saussure, and you get some more developed, some more sophisticated versions of this later in postmodernism. He was one of the founders of postmodern thought. And he says basically, he he created the categories of sign and signified in language. And he said, well, there's the the sign, the word you use, and then the thing that it signifies, the, let's say, object that you are pointing at when you say that word. Um, so... So, I say before Saussure, linguists assumed that the words we used had an inherent meaning to signify what we talked about. And I use the example if one were to talk about God, it would be assumed that they were talking about a person, a transcendent being, as God is known to be those things. Saussure would say this notion of communication is untrue. In his theory, there are two major distinctions the sign, the word, and the signified, the thing that is being related or ordered. I use those words on purpose. Again, I use those words on purpose. In his thinking, it is only upon tradition or agreed upon connectivity that there is a relationship between these two things. God may only be called God because we have an agreed upon tradition in the West about what the sign is signifying. And this may be partially true, especially when talking to someone from the East, which the East, who is Muslim or Hindu. The only trouble with the critique would be that those religions would disagree on the signified God or gods. But we would all be fighting about how to conceive of the transcendent thing we see that guides things. Trouble comes for the postmodernist and a discussion like this because they believe in no transcendence. The, big pro- the biggest problem with Saussure's method of deconstruction of language is the loss of a manner narrative bringing anything together. Because, again, in his thinking, it is only in agreed-upon tradition or connectivity. Well, if there's no narrative that binds us together, what are we agreeing on? And I cro- quote him as saying, he thought, or the, The author, I quote uh, Galen Brown, who wrote Postmodernism for Historians. They say this, the third thing that Sincere criticized was the notion of the certainty of the link between a sign and its object. So the word and the thing being talked about, the certainty and preeminence that the word mouse meant a rodent. Sincere denied this. He said that the linguistic sign is arbitrary. Keep thinking about this. He said that the linguistic sign is arbitrary and randomly chosen. Any word might be selected to denote mouse, such as elephant. There was no preordained rule that it said it had to be mouse. Further, the whole sign system was arbitrary, and that there is nothing in the word mouse that can be said to resemble the animal. So Sears' most troubling phrase has to be, that signs are arbitrary and randomly chosen, referring back to the example above. Is it, it is not arbitrary that major religions choose to use the word God or gods to talk about what is transcendent. They would just argue about the nature of such a being, but the transcendence is one thing that would involve all of their definitions, regardless of geographical location or specificity of belief, so call it a metanarrative. Time out. Go ahead.
4: One thing that I think is interesting, right, is you can say I know you this... didn't
1: want to go here but I thought yeah. we should. No,
4: no, no. No, it's fine. I am uh, I'm, I'm with you. Um, one of the things that I think is significant. So this is will
1: to power with words. Yes, will this to power. This is so with Sears, words. this is the consequence of Saussure's <clears throat> deconstruction of language philosophy.
4: Yeah. Well, and so What is a
1: woman? I'm like dude, I'm serious. Yeah. yeah. If there is no relation between the sign and the signified, we've gotten to a point where we can't define a woman.
4: Well, and where we can't define anything, right? Because if there's no relationship between the sign and the signified, then you can call a mouse an elephant and it, it be fine. The, and I can understand his idea yeah that... i even
1: like i said I even partially agree right yes we have to understand we we know this dude i just saw a clip i'm gonna keep bringing up people from daily wire as if i'm a huge fan i'm really not but <laughs> here we are clavin he's probably my by the way he's probably my least favorite person on their roster um yeah. for for i have specific reasons for that but anyway he talks about words as vessels, which is similar to Saussure's language, right? Yeah. But we, again, we're imbuing meaning to communicate something. Mm -hmm. And I think we're, like I said, where Saussure is devastationally wrong is the idea that there is an arbitrary way in which we assign meaning.
4: Well, and so there's, it's one thing to say that the sound selection and arrangement is arbitrarily assigned a meaning Mm -hmm. and the other thing and another thing to say that the meaning itself is arbitrary
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
4: -hmm. right and that i think is important because if i'm standing so so my wife speaks Mm -hmm. arabic um really yes um yeah and so if I'm, let's use the mouse example. If I point to the mouse and say mouse in English, and she points to the mouse and says whatever mouse is in Arabic, I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. Then
4: we both know what we're meaning when we use that word, even though the sounds themselves might not be intrinsically linked mm-hmm. to the thing the object in the world they have been at least culturally linked to a meaning that does exist
1: mm-hmm.
4: and that's the important thing
1: my biggest critique of um of um this idea of it's actually called structuralism is this idea of language um but is is just the question? Then why the hell translate anything? If, yeah. me, like you just said, if is right and meaning is arbitrary, why translate anything? I'm just transferring my arbitrary meaning on words. It's my will to power. To control what you say about a certain thing, and not to say that people don't control things about which people say. It's happened a lot. But if that's the only game you're playing, well, I guess, I think that's a stupid game. You play stupid games, you get stupid prizes. Let's get to the meat of this. I have one more, one more section.
0: Yeah.
1: In his book, I had to bring in Peterson. In his book, Twelve Rules for Life, Jordan Peterson has a rule about speech, chapter ten, called "Be Precise in Your Speech." The point of the practice is to help curb the arbitrariness with which many people speak, using words that do, they using words that do not mean, and attempting to communicate they do not mean and to communicate. Typo. If people can say things more precisely, they will filter the communication for someone listening and themselves, for that matter to distill properly what is intended. All of this does not work in a postmodernism frame. If signs as signified are just games with words and then games for the powerful to use words and other things in ways they want, what would be the point of trying to communicate anything at all, if only for power? It certainly wouldn't be clarity. And clarity to what end? If there, if there be nothing that unites us, no underlying narrative being pointed at, like I just said. And so here's a quote from Peterson's chapter 10. We don't see valueless entities and then attribute meaning to them, so it's not arbitrary. We perceive meaning directly. We see floors to walk on, doors to duck through, and chairs to sit on. It's for the reason that a beanbag and a stump both fall into the latter category, despite having little objectivity in common. Chair, we've used this example before. We see rocks because we can throw them and clouds because they can rain on us and apples to eat on automobiles for other people to get in our way and annoy us. We see tolls and obstacles, not objects or things or tools and obstacles. That's also another typo. We see tools and obstacles At the handy level of analysis that make them most useful or dangerous. (laughs) Well, we'll keep that. I'll read that again at some point. Given our needs, abilities, and perceptual limits, the world reveals itself to us as something to utilize and something to navigate through, not as something that merely is
0: Yeah. But this is what happens in a world where there is no. The
1: postmodernists gave us a great word, and it's meta narrative. Mm
0: -hmm. They don't
1: believe in it. But (laughs) what is the MCU but a meta narrative? I'm serious. What are all the Avengers movies? You don't have Endgame or Infinity War without a meta-narrative. There is no intertextuality without a meta-narrative.
0: We lose our vision, literally, because this is how we see the world.
1: I want to just move on to Abolition of Man. Go for it. If that's okay with you. Yeah.
4: I think the point's been made.
1: I quoted Peterson, so.
4: Yeah. <laughs> we got that. <laughs> which was box.
1: which was something that uh, we were going to play, but I think the, the point we wanted him to make has been made. I've read this before. I'll read it again. In their second chapter, Guy Santillius quote the well-known: st- "Keep in mind, sign, signified, arbitrary, will to power, language, no transcendent thing that guides how we talk to each other, how we communicate with each other. It's all just arbitrary, or it's all equal. There are no instruments of orientation. We're or flying upside down, or the third culture." just smashing against the second culture winning the kingdom without the king.
4: Good news or advice.
1: In their second chapter, Gaius and Tedious quote the well-known story of Coleridge at the waterfall. You remember that there were two tourists present, the one called it sublime and the other pretty, and that Coleridge mentally endorsed the first judgment and rejected the second with disgust. Gaius and Tedious comment as follows. When the man said, "This is sublime," he appeared to, making, to be making a remark about the waterfall. Actually, he was not remarking. He was not making a remark about the waterfall, but a remark about his own feelings. What he was saying was, "I really, was really, I have feelings associated in my mind with the word sublime." I have feelings associated in my mind with the word sublime. I am signifying this thing arbitrarily because of how it makes me feel. Or shortly, I have sublime feelings. End quote from Gaius and Titius. Here are a good many deep questions settled in a pretty summary fashion, but the authors are not finished. They add, quote, this confusion is continually present in language as we use it, We appear to be saying something very important about something, and actually, we are only saying something about our own feelings. Before considering the issue really raised by this momentous little paragraph designed, you will remember, for the upper forms of school, values or facts, what are you talking about? We must eliminate one mere confusion into which guys of todays have fallen, even on their own view, on any conceivable view. The man who says, this is sublime, cannot mean I have sublime feelings, even if it were granted that such qualities as sublimity were simply and solely projected onto things from our own emotions. Yet the emotions which prompt the projection are the correlatives, and therefore almost the opposite of the qualities projected the feelings, and if you want me to stop, just tell me, which make a man call an object sublime are not sublime feelings, but feelings of veneration. If this is sublime, is to be reduced to at all, to a statement about the speaker's feelings, the proper translation would be, I have humble feelings. If the view held by Geis and were constantly applied, it would lead to obvious absurdities. It would force them To maintain that you are contemptible means I have contemptible feelings, not you act in a contemptible way. Because again, in the words we use, there's a disconnect between our morals and our actions. So, therefore, how can I make a moral judgment about you? In fact, your feelings are contemptible means my feelings are contemptible. But we need not delay over this, which is the very pointus Assorium of our subject, it would be unjust to guys entities themselves emphasize what was doubtless a mere inadvertence.
0: This is the paradigm we've
4: been using for quite some time, right? What about the waterfall? hmm If everything is transparent, you see through everything. There's no orienting principle. There's no limiting principle. We can very easily fly upside down. And that seems like it's okay until you pull up and you realize you were actually pulling down, which is exactly what happened
0: in Willard's example.
1: Lewis continues, I'm not concerned with what they desire, but what the effect of their book will certainly have on the schoolboy's mind. In the same way, they have not said that judgments of value are unimportant. They're just all equal. Their words are that we appear to be saying something very important. <clears throat> are you sincere? We appear to be saying something very important, when in reality, we are only saying something about our own feelings. No schoolboy will be able to resist the suggestion brought to bear upon him by that word only. We are only saying something about our own feelings. We're only arbitrarily assigning meaning to these words, to these objects then in the world. I do not mean, of course, that he will make any conscious inference from what he reads to a general philosophy theory, that all values are subjective and trivial. they're all on the ideological supermarket. The very power of Guy and Titius depends on the fact that they are dealing with a boy, a boy who thinks he's doing his English prep, and has not, and has no notion that ethics, theology and politics are all at stake. It is not a theory they put into his mind, but an assumption, which 10 years hence, its origin forgotten, and its presence unconscious, unconscious, will condition him to take one side in a controversy, which he has never recognized as a controversy at all. The officers themselves, I suspect, hardly know what they are doing to that boy, and he cannot know what is being done to him.
4: And that I think is a really good point because we exist in a, I mean, in talking about this cultural moment, right? With the podcast that bears that name. We exist in a cultural moment where I think a lot of people have a lot of underlying assumptions about what is moral and what is not. But they've done very little to understand how they've come to view what is moral and what is not as
0: moral or immoral. And
4: I think I had done that for quite some time myself. And that's one of the reasons why I think this conversation is so important is because now I'm starting to realize a lot of the underlying paradigms that have come to shape the way I view things. And that there is such a thing as advice, but there's also a realm of truth, and that's where good news operates.
0: And I think that's an important realization.
1: Okay. I have one more, uh, maybe just, I don't know. I think with what you just said, I think Lewis makes this point, makes Newbegin's point again. So here, I'm just, I'm just want to, I'm not just getting this from one person. Over and again stands the world of the Green Book, Gaius and book. In it, the very possibility of a statement being reasonable or even unreasonable has been excluded from the outset. I'll read that again. Over and against this stands the world of the Green Book. In it, the very possibility of a statement being reasonable or even unreasonable has been excluded from the outset. It can be reasonable or unreasonable only if it conforms or falls Or fails to conform to something else. To say that the cataract is sublime means saying that our emotion of humility is appropriate or ordinate to the reality, and thus to speak of something else besides the emotion, just as to say that just as to say that a shoe fits is to speak not only of the shoe, but of feet. But this reference. To something beyond the emotion of what Gaius and Titius exclude from every sentence. But this reference, to something beyond the emotion, is what Gaius and Titius exclude from every sentence containing a predicate of value. There is no objective. There is no transcendence. There is no meta-narrative. Such statements for them refer solely to emotion. Now, the emotion, thus considered by itself, cannot be regarded in agreement or disagreement with reason. It is irrational, not as a paralogism is irrational, but as a physical event is irrational. It does not reside even to the dignity of error on this view. The world of facts, without one trace of value, and the world of feelings, without one trace of of truth or falsehood, justice or injustice, confront one another, and no reproachment is possible. And all the time, such as the tragic comedy of our situation, we continue to clamor for those qualities which we are rendering impossible. We'll get back to that. You can hardly open up a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst we castrate and bid the gildings be fruitful. Chapter 2 The practical result of education in the spirit of the Green Book must be the destruction of the society which accepts it. But these are not necessarily a refutation of subjectivism about values as a theory. The true doctrine might be a doctrine for which, we, for which if we accept, we die. No one who speaks from within the Tao can reject it on that account, but it has not yet come to that. There are theoretical difficulties in the philosophy of Gaius and Titius. However subjective they may be about some traditional values, guys and today's have shown, by the very act of writing the Green Book, that there must be some other values about which they are not subjective at all. They write in order to produce certain states of mind in the rising generation, if not because they think those states of mind intrinsically just, just or good, yet certainly because they think of them to be the, to be the means to some state of society which they regard as desirable. It would not be difficult to collect from various passages in the Green Book what their ideal is, but we need not. The important point is not the precise nature of their end, but the fact that they have an end at all. They must have, or their book, being purely practical and intention, is written to no purpose. And this end must have real value In their eyes, in their eyes, to abstain from calling it good and to use instead such predicates as necessary or progressive or efficient would be subterfuge. They could be forced by argument to answer the question necessary for what, progress towards what, effecting what, and the last resort they would have to admit that some state of affairs was in their opinion good for its own sake. Your value suspended in midair. And this time they could not maintain that good It simply described their own emotion about it for the whole purpose of their book is so to condition the young reader that he will share their approval. And this would either be a fool's Or a villain's undertaking, unless they held that their approval was in some way valid or correct.
0: I'm done.
4: So, a couple of things. Um... I think this greatly reflects.
1: Do you not hear Newbegin in this?
4: Oh, absolutely. Isn't this exactly what he's saying? This is Newbegin. This is Willard. And I'm about to read a paragraph from several paragraphs from Willard, probably. Um, They're
0: all saying the same thing. This is also Peterson, though. Peterson talks about. Um the game he would play with students. I'd sit down. He'd say, you move first. And you don't know what to do because there's no board. There are no pieces. There are no rules. And so you have nothing, nothing you can do. You need the object. And sure, you can say, the rules are my will to power.
4: Or you can recognize that the pieces and the board are actual objects that exist in the world.
1: Or even if your rules are a will to power, isn't your statement that your rules are just will to power? mean that you think you have a better idea of what the rules could be, so you're willing your power over you?
0: We become circular and nihilistic. And all the while, we create men without chests. And that that
4: statement right there... Well, women, is
1: just, for that matter.
0: Yeah.
4: We quite create- literally. Yeah, we create people without moral potential and expect of them virtue. I'll read it again. His essay was occasioned by an encounter with one of his students over the moral uh, over the moral insensitivity. Is it hard for him to say moral behavior, uh, immoral behavior? Excuse me of other students, some of the best and brightest at Harvard. This student was a young woman of a Midwestern working class background, where as is well known, things like right answers and ideology remain strong. She cleaned students rooms to help pay her way through the university. Again and again, she reported to Coles, the professor, People who were in classes with her treated her ungraciously because of her lower economic position, without simple courtesy and respect, and often were rude and sometimes crude to her. She was of a different socioeconomic class, and thus she was not regarded as being made in the image of God. She was repeatedly propositioned for sex by one young student in particular as she went about her work. He was a man with whom she had had two moral reasoning courses in which he excelled and received the highest of grades, and I'll continue. This pattern of treatment led her to quit her job and leave school and to do something like an exit interview with Coles after going over not only the behavior, Of her fellow students, but also the long list of highly educated people who have perpetrated the atrocities for which the 20th century is famous. She concluded by saying, I've been been taking all these philosophy courses and we talk about what's true, what's important, what's good. Well, how do you teach people to be good? And she added, what's the point of knowing good if you don't keep trying to become a good person? And that ultimately is, I think, how this subject, for Willard and for us, relates back to our overarching idea of what we're doing here. We want to talk about the gospel. And it's impossible to talk about Being good, if we're stuck in this
0: third culture reality without
4: any grounding, if we're flying upside down, if the waterfall is transparent, we can't. We need to be talking about a reality. And here, is the reality we should be talking about. So this is still Willard chapter one, page 34. So when Jesus directs us to pray, thy kingdom come, he does not mean we should pray for it to come into existence. Rather, we pray for it to take over all points in the personal social political order where it is now excluded on earth as it is in heaven, with this prayer we are invoking it, as in faith we are acting it, into the real world of our daily existence. With his overarching dominion, God has created us and has given each of us, like him, a range of will, beginning from our minds and bodies and extending outward, ultimately to a point not wholly predetermined, but open to the measure Our faith. His intent is for us to learn to mesh our kingdom with the kingdoms of others. Love of neighbor, rightly understood, will make this happen, but we can only love adequately by taking as our primary aim the integration of our rule with God's. That is why love of neighbor is second, not first. In the commandments, and why we are to seek, uh, why we are told to seek first the kingdom or rule of
0: God. That is
4: why it is important to properly understand this, and that is why we start here. Because if we are supposed to be ambassadors bringing the kingdom of God in our time, in as many ways as we can. We are supposed to rightly order ourselves with the news, not the advice, and partner with others who are on this journey too. Loving them in right order as we all love God. That's the call. That's the mission. That's the gospel.
1: As always, thank you very much for listening to the Belfast Podcast here. I really hope that you enjoyed the episode, that it was fruitful, that it was challenging. We have one more here to go on Chapter 1, wrapping up a lot of the things that have just been said. I'm going to link back to Peterson, a conversation you had with Jonathan Peugeot and this idea of vision and language, ascending the mountain of God, ascending the mountain to get clear vision continue to read from Lewis The Problem of Pain The Necessity of a Playable Game and more from The Abolition of Man Uh, I should have posted and I think I will post a reading I do of the second chapter in The Problem of Pain before I post this episode so if you haven't watched that and you want more context for this quotation for some of the arguments that Lewis is making. You can watch that. And so, all this conversation of the loss of morals flying upside down, the inaction of many people who talk about morality, is exactly what Jesus is against here in the Sermon on the Mount. And I felt it important to lay this long argument before you as we begin chapter 1. Because, well, what we have here is what's the consequence of chapter 2, Gospels of Sin Management. And that's what we'll talk about next week.